Hello, everyone. You're in it. And this is Dave Birnbaum. Today's episode is the second of two episodes that are made out of audio from panels that I moderated at Digital Hollywood. Digital Hollywood is a conference that takes place every six months, and one just took place a couple of weeks ago. This panel was called VRARMR Think Tank, The Deep Dive, Creative, Visionary, Experiential Content and Technology. So basically a pile of buzzwords, but they are actually meaningful and describe what we talked about. I have to apologize in advance for the audio quality of this podcast. It's lower than I would have liked, and it's just the way that the recording turned out. Especially at the beginning where I read everybody's bio, my microphone is a little bit distorted. So I thought I'd spare you and instead read the panelists' bios as a part of this introduction. So here we go. David Gull. David is a tech entrepreneur, licensed architect, startup advisor, and LEED accredited professional with particular focus on virtual reality and augmented reality solutions for real estate and futuristic enterprise visions. He's delivered 500 plus new development virtual tours to date. He believes people make decisions based on gut level emotions and VR and AR can be a powerful asset to create emotionally compelling experiences that motivate people to take action. Samantha Gorman. Samantha is co-founder and director at Tender Claws, an award-winning independent creative studio operating at the intersection of art, games, and technology. She's been working in XR since 2002, specializing in writing for interactive media, and is currently a PhD fellow in media arts and practice at USC's School of Cinematic Arts. With her work at Tender Claws, she brings a unique approach to XR content creation making players question the nature of technology and our place in a tech-driven society. Work from Tenderclaws has helped launch every major XR platform, including Google Daydream, Google AR Core, Oculus Go, and Oculus Quest. David Brady. David is CEO of Cream Productions, a company he co-founded in 2003. With offices in Toronto and Los Angeles, Cream develops, finances, and produces distinctive and award-winning content across a wide range of TV and digital platforms in North America and internationally. Cream is a world leader in VR AR technologies and storytelling, starting its VR unit in 2015. Cream is currently developing a proprietary technology to create high fidelity, low computational AI backed virtual humans. Renee Amador. Renee has worked with 16 startups over 22 years, starting at age 10 when he got his start selling personal finance software his father developed for the Commodore Amiga computer. After working in digital development for Fox Broadcasting Company and the Baker Entertainment Group, he co-founded digital agency Automaton Creative, where he pitched and directed over 350 commercials, short films, and pilots as co-founder, general manager, and creative director. Rene co-founded AR Wall in 2017 as an augmented reality solution for filmmakers. Mark Rickard. Mark is an award-winning film and VR producer. Mr. Rickard founded the immersive entertainment company Virtuality in 2017, with initial ventures including the groundbreaking volumetric adaptation of monologues from Macbeth titled Shakespeareances, which he also directed. He's aiming to again break new ground with forthcoming experiences based on major literary works, such as an award-winning novel by Arthur C. Clarke. So a really interesting, diverse group of people. 
Some of them focused on storytelling and narrative, others focused on business, but all leaders in this new industry of immersive technology. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So let's get started. Some of the panelists gave us some visuals, so we'll just go go through some interesting videos that will give you a little bit more perspective on, on uh, what everyone's working on. So the first one, going back to Renee, is AR Wall. Renee, anything you want to add to that to explain what's happening here? Oh, so this is our uh, filmmaking technology. We call it ARFX. Uh, we're the first ones to do this. We've done about 40 deployments of this type of technology. And to be clear, this is a complete alternative and replacement to green screen visual effects. Thanks. Really cool. All right. Uh, and this is from Outer Realm. This is David Gull. Is that actually you? Too late for the other ones. So can you explain what's happening here? Yeah, there's no sweet music, but um, <laughs> basically we, uh, we're super focused on giving people immersive, realistic experiences in this case um, for the actual conveying of an architectural project uh, to win the city approvals so community board uh, members and community members can go actually tour through the proposed property and approve. Um, in this case, they're approving uh, that scope that encroached into the sidewalk um, and by allowing everyone to actually experience that they approved it because it gave something uh, an amenity to the city instead of taking something away from the city oh yeah look up cool. all right this is tender claws samantha tell us about the under yeah so the under is our newest project um it was designed originally as a Quest launch title. It's in partnership with Oculus, and it's coming very, very soon. It's a full-fledged, like, eight-hour game, but um, one of the things we worked on is for the next four months, in the first four months after launch, we'll have live actors in the game possessing NPCs for the first, uh, yeah, where there, you'll be able to have some chance encounters. So. All right, and video from Cream. That was the wrong video, but <laughs> that what we're very interested in doing is um, is human performance and digital, virtually created digital humans. Um, and we the challenge was to create um, to scan a, a, a performer, an actor, and then recreate him digitally um, so that he can be put in he or she can be put in a virtual space. The the challenge that we had is that we wanted to be able to put it out on uh, mobile processors. So you can find um, photo real digital humans in feature films, and they require a lot of rendering time. And they're very, very expensive, millions of dollars. Whereas uh, our goal was to create a photo real human that you can interact with that um, you know, uses machine learning and the game engine to drive it, has lip sync, because I think it's very important that you have an avatar that actually sort of syncs his lips. They're very rare to find and can be... Um, uh, used on mobile. So that's our latest product and we're very proud of it because we think it's one of the only ones, if not the only one on the market that can do that. And it's very cheap too, which was important to us. Cool. All right. So um, I want to go back and, and talk about Oculus Quest and Vive Cosmos, the new um, generation of VR that is making a splash and um, may portend kind of a shift in the industry. Um, 
maybe, oh, what do you have there? It's an Oculus okay, Quest. Okay, it's an Oculus Quest. So um, it, may, it may end kind of this bifurcation of VR into mobile, where you put your phone in a headset versus PC configurations. There's going to be more crossover with LBE. There's going to be immersive experiences that are available out of home. And so um, first directed to Samantha, but anyone can chime in, of course. Um, how do these changes affect production and distribution? And is AR on a similar path to VR, or is it very different? I think, um, to back up a sec, for like the larger context, I think when people talk about like AR and VR and comparing them or combining them into one thing or how they're different, it's usually about spatial com this idea of spatial computing. So it's not necessarily, I think, about the difference between AR, you know, which is... Um, a lot, like kind of, you know, projected onto your world that you're seeing on the outside or VR, which is more hermetically sealed experience in the headset, but an idea of like spatial computing and a three-dimensional world access where you can, act, you can interact with the graphics and how they, you know, actually like impact your world. So I think how, what everyone is predicted and which does seem like it could be the future is like an integrated, you know, all-in-one AR, VR type of headset. And I don't think that's like a surprise that that's where it could be headed. Um, is there a second part of that question or is it general? Uh, no, please, mm -hmm. someone want to chime in. Well, I mean, this is the quest that you talk about. And I, um, the, you know, I think we all, well, we didn't grow up, but we all started developing, well, maybe you've been doing it since 2002. It's okay. <laughs> you've had some, but lately, you know, the, the tethered um, sort of the Vive and the Oculus, original Oculus was probably the most, it had a lot of friction because you're tethered to a, a large computer. This I find just anecdotally at home with the kids, the kids have tried them all out. And these are all teenagers from the, from the neighborhood. They've tried the Vive, they tried the Oculus, but they all come around and this seems to stick. So yes, it's huge, um, but because it doesn't attach to a computer and all the processing is done in here, it sort of seems to be the next phase. As you say, I could, we could all see in the future maybe this shrinking down until it's just a pair of glasses, really. I mean, that's all our dreams, you know. Um, so that, you know, you're, you're wearing your glasses, of course, and, and everything you see, it will be projected on here. And you can go either into virtual reality or AR or a combination of the two. But if you see the trajectory, I can, you know, we can just hope that that, that happens sooner than later. And the, the Quest has a pass-through camera. So it's, you can clearly see the blueprints of this happening where when you wear a quest and you're arranging like the safety boundaries of the world around you, you see a uh, camera image of your world in the viewer before it goes fully into VR. Yeah, anyone wants to try it afterwards, we could put it on your head if you want. Just anecdotally, my youngest son, he was wandering around with this for about a week and at one point he took it in the car. He's like, do you think it'll work in the car, Dad? And I said, yeah, it'll work in the car. Let's try it out. And it worked in the car. So I think that there's, you know, you know, there's a lot of progress being made for users. Was he driving? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a, uh, have to cross the Pacific Ocean in a few weeks, and I'm definitely bringing my quest because it's going to make it easier for me for sure. And actually, when we were designing um, uh, an AR experience for haptics, we struggled so much with augmented reality headsets that we actually finally gave up and switched to VR with video pass-through. And so I, I think that it could be the case that video pass-through becomes uh, better faster than AR headsets mm. and that you actually may like use a VR headset for AR. It's possible. And you look very cool wandering around with it on, of course. It's like Beats <laughs> headphones for your eyes. <clears throat> 
Cool. Uh, all right. So an another interesting topic uh, with this shift in VR is controllers. Um, so the, the Vive Cosmos has a new type of controller. Um, controllers are starting to get more advanced functionality with like advanced haptics. At the same time, um, it's some companies are trying to get rid of the controller altogether and uh, hand tracking is coming to the Oculus Quest, supposedly. There are startups that are going to be able to track your hands and do skeletal models of your hand configuration so that you won't actually be able, you won't need to touch anything. Um, so the question um, directed at David Gall, um, so hand tracking for VR, what is, is that, is that a good thing? Is it going to help enterprise and, and then to the rest of the group for entertainment? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it definitely does depend on the industry that you're in. I think that uh, hand tracking for the consumer industry is going to make a huge difference because the more friction, what we're learning is the more friction you can take out of the process, the higher the adoption rate will be. So now that you can unbox an Oculus Quest and go from opening it to up and playing a game in about two to five minutes, that's a huge difference from unboxing the original Oculus and 30 minutes to an hour later being up and running. So I think just taking one more thing out of it and having people pull it out of a box, throw it on and be playing and be excited and be immersed in something and interacting with something is going to be huge. On the flip side, I think controllers in particular for anything that's an enterprise use are going to be really valuable. I mean, we've been trying to get rid of the mouse and the keyboard on computers forever and everyone still wants a mouse and a keyboard. Um, you know, the, the iPad was awesome when it came out and it had an integrated keyboard. And then the first thing that everyone did was build a case that had a keyboard in it. Um, so I think like anything, best of both worlds, you ship with both and they work, they both work equally well. Anyone else? I like the fact that, that if we lose the controllers, we can, we can, uh, share experiences more readily, you know, because, uh, one of the biggest issues that I'm sure we all experience is when you're trying to show somebody something in a headset and it takes them like five minutes of messing around in there before they hmm. click the play button or, and then you're like, give me it back. I'll do it for you, blah, blah, blah. But if, if we can get rid of the controller element, that's really going to allow for more fluid sharing of content. Hmm. And then of course, you know, depending on the experience itself, you're, you'll have a lot more freedom with, with lack of encumbrances that the controllers can add. Yeah, and just to clarify, um, I don't know if any of you guys have actually seen it or tried it, but Zuckerberg at the OC conference showed it, and it and the and it, you just use your hands, and it sees your entire hand, so it can see your fingers, and it's it's just the virtual headset sees everything. I don't know how real that is, but that's that's what he's pitching. So um, you can press buttons. Yeah, I. We've tried it, and I think like anything, there's like uh, constraints around the technology, right? So I guess a good example is when our actors, we were asked, oh, why didn't you use hand tracking for your actors? And it's, well, like, not everybody acts, you know, with all their gestures in this window in front of you, right? Or, like, there's, what is the occlusion for the camera? Because, like, it's, there's certain different gestures, so it's an promising, and I think it's going to be exciting when I think it's going to go live in the coming months and more devs have access to it. Um, however, if you're making games for entertainment, there's a whole discussion, um, I guess, a pushback against rid getting rid of the controllers because gamers really want the trigger button. 
And that is something mm. that I think is like really instituted and sticking kind of even in this space where people are talking about hand tracking is that is a concern. Just ask a question in the audience. How many people have tried one of these on? So most people, okay. So everyone, pretty much everyone's familiar. Okay. Yeah. Just curious. Yeah, no, it, it, I wonder if um, we're moving towards a moment that's similar to the Connect, right? Where there's a there's a, a class of experiences that become enabled, like the way that the Connect enabled a new type of game for a while, um, but that it, it may it may not be perfectly overlapping functionality. Um, anyway, okay. So, um, so another interesting aspect of all of this is that the new technologies are enabling new types of narratives. So you saw with 360 video and then VR that you know storytelling kind of changed because um, you could tell stories from different perspectives. You could build sense of empathy that you couldn't before, and so there were new formats. You know, the fact that you couldn't wear the the, the, the early headsets for very long meant that the content was short. So there were all these new constraints and new opportunities created by that for storytelling. Um, and so this is directed at Mark. Uh, what are the new storytelling techniques and changes to the way that we tell stories that are going to be coming in the next few years with these new technologies? I think uh, to encapsulate the governing principle there would be mixed media, right? And uh, that's, that's a catch-all way of saying utilizing different formats of capturing media and then the assets derived from that blend it together to make the sum total of a more immersive experience. A couple of examples of this are uh, something we have in the can that we shot last summer. Uh, the director, Brett Leonard, who did The Lawnmower Man, uh, we shot a uh, 360 series and a feature film at the same time. So it was the same script, same actor, same set. We would shoot at 360 in the morning, then uh, come in in the afternoon and, and do the 2D coverage. Uh, what was born from that is um, a pretty revolutionary, <clears throat> excuse me, revolutionary uh, uh, format that, that we kind of didn't anticipate. I, I look around the room and I see some people who've already seen it so they, they, they can nod in corroboration, hopefully. But uh, we blended the 2D assets inside of 360 space, right? Which allowed us the opportunity, which uh, most 360 video is devoid of, to actually get a more intimate look at the scene as it's taking place. So while you're while you're immersed in, in a setting and a scene is happening before you, we, we activate emotional lenses, what we call them, with 2D footage that are the same scene taking place, not necessarily the same take, but you know, basically beat for beat. And uh, it, it, it opens up the narrative and emotional engagement in a way that previously none of us had seen or thought of. And now it, it sort of sets the table for, uh, for going forward how we can, how we can ideate. So uh, that's, that's an example of, of, you know, integrating various forms of media into one, one product, if you will, and, uh, and activating them across platforms because you have the assets to do that. And I know, uh, you know, what, what Renee does is very similar in the sense that it's, it's, a, it's a, a mixed media gumbo, right? So, so it's utilizing all the tools at our disposal to make a more meaningful, and in this case, narrative experience. Uh, that's exactly correct. If you can imagine it, it's... Um, if you're familiar with film and television sets, you're basically adding a couple more people to that kind of hodgepodge of team. You have a lead artist, uh, someone in charge of performance, someone in charge of audio. And then the interesting thing about what we're up to is uh, we have someone thinking about uh, linear time. So someone who's in charge of uh, the animation and sequencing of all the events, whether that's um, on a film set or out at an experiential. 
and then we have an engineer actually building interactivity in. So to be clear, when if when you're looking at our uh, virtual sets, there's interactivity with the camera, but then there's also interactivity with the actors in the actual um, scene. They can trigger events uh, with their gestures and motion and stuff like that. So we've been seeing the world of experientials um, where there's a, a very high expectation of interactivity and the world of cinema where there's a, a focus on high level of design and control. These are kind of smashing together uh, right now in our office. And uh, we're working on a major deployment right now that kind of combines everything together. And I think the key stakeholders, it's like five people, which is way more uh, than I'm used to uh, having on this type of project, but it's simply a necessity, um, uh, not only because the time crunch we're doing this in four to six weeks, um, so a very major deployment for a retail brand, um, but the, the the office is very interesting as a result of that. We've got a lot of people from a lot of different disciplines and backgrounds, not just game development, um, but coming in from visual effects um, and all these types of uh, different worlds, and that makes it very interesting. Wow. Cool. Anyone else? How many people here are writers or screenwriters? Okay, cool, awesome. Um, so I know that Yvette, who couldn't be with us today, has worked on creating some um, types of structures for writing interactive projects. Um, I'm, I kind of work in a different mode where because I'm doing a lot of things with technology that are kind of... Um, like even like uh, in Tendar, where we were doing things with um, machine learning and AR that hadn't really been combined before, I have to kind of recreate and really think on our toes for why we're including the interactivity and why, like, what does that resonance have with the story? And um, not just to have branching choices for the sake of branching choices. And when you're thinking about who can compose for spatial media, I find that actually working with screenwriters to kind of teach them because uh, they're imagining, you know, sometimes a movie set in multiple dimensions. So screenwriters and playwriter, playwrights are some of the best writers that can adjust to interact with me, at least in my experience. Um, our next project is going to be co-written with a screenwriter as well. You know, an important distinction on that, because uh, we have writers on the team and I come from I come from film originally. And it, it, there there was initially it, it was kind of an insurmountable uh, answer to seek. In, in the sense that in the early days of VR, you'd go to these panels, you'd hear people talking about the rules that you can or cannot break or what still needs to be established. And it kind of it kind of had everybody held up for a while in the ideation process in, in, in a way that I think was was possibly, uh, you know, a bit of a a bit of a, a waylay. But um, but one thing that was a key breakthrough for us is, uh, when, when we just decided to get out there and experiment was the notion of ideating from a void of blackness. Right. And what I mean by that is when you think about typical media presentations, you're often you're often thinking about what's the set, what's the backdrop, what, how do I fill every square inch of this place with something to look at? And and, uh, you know, what's derived from the experience inside of a headset is often that if what I'm looking at is meaningful enough or interesting enough, the rest of it can be a total black void, you know. So so that kind of that kind of reconfigured our perception of of, of how much. What is narrative really? What's the journey that you take somebody on? And does it have to be a direct transposition from the typical, you know, filmic format? Um, and it's been a revelation. So, you know, two cents in the pot for people. Start with the start with blackness in your mind and see what happens. 
And, and for AR, would that also apply? How, I mean, AR, the blackness is the world around you. It's the context. Yeah. So how does that affect the, um, your thinking there? Um, I think with AR, there's a lot more of an expectation that you, your, your, like, your identity as a user um, is going to be incorporated into the story somehow, either because of your location, your gestures, um, some type of action that you're taking to interact um, with, with that AR world. Um, that's that's what that's what we're we're feeling. I think with VR, um, there's more of an understanding that it's going to be a slightly more of a um, like a curated experience. That you come in, you have this, you're kind of going on a ride, almost like uh, um, you know what people were kind of um, comparing it to, which is like surround cinema. I think it's it's been able to uh, break out and achieve something more than that. But I think the expectation is still like. I'm going to take you on a ride and me, the creator, is going to dictate that for you. Whereas an AR, um, because I guess arguably because it's coming out of the world of mobile a little bit more, this is an expectation of like, it's about you and it's about like, what are your goals and what are you up to? And trying to match that somehow with some type of valuable experience. Um, so the way that we're thinking about it is um, a lot more uh, like a traditional user story where uh, that you would have for an interactive experience um, with the interesting part of that every every part, every segment of that has to be at the quality of cinema, um, which is the, the kind of the goal that we have for ourselves at our company, um, for kind of bringing that to the world of AR. So um, I think it makes a, it sets a very high bar because uh, in, in actuality, there is no actual answer to how do I give you a cinematic uh, rich experience uh, while still also kind of um, being fully fo focused on you, your objectives, your uh, your actions. Um, there's no easy answer to that yet. And I think that's the kind of the challenge that we're facing in AR. Interesting. Um, also, Mark, I think you were talking earlier about some uh, volumetric integration with LBE. Is that? Yeah, uh, we, we uh, closed a deal to make... Um, so we got the rights to to the MacGyver franchise, and and we're going to be making uh, uh, VR escape rooms, right? Uh, but there, but there, the key selling point there is that it, is that we're going to allow users to uh, view themselves volumetrically in in real time for the first time. So essentially, uh, the breakthrough there will be that that uh, that the player or user experience, if if that phrase can catch on. Uh, will will be able to see themselves and the people that they're there with in uh, in a communal way and participate, you know, collectively to to solve problems uh, set against the backdrop of the the MacGyver IP. So so uh, volumetric assets, which as as have already been touched upon, are are are, are generally pretty um, costly and 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 in my experience. To a large extent, overkill for the for the final product, depending on what you want to do. Bless you. Uh, but uh, but in this case, you know the 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 meaningful integration of the of, of the player and an ability to see themselves as themselves volumetrically will 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 kind of um, double down on the the immersion of it. And uh, and once again, it's 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 a hybrid. It's a it's a mixed media. I mean that th this experience will be MR in the traditional sense. Uh, and it's location-based, so it's a little bit more on the premium end, and they're for the budget as well. But uh, but the the sum total of it will be, you know, a very progressive breakthrough in the in cinematic VR fuel. 
only such a tech forward group would say traditional MR. I don't think <laughs> I've ever heard those words. <laughs> so uh, David Brady, um, you, you're you also working on AI-driven avatars, and I know that you've been looking at them for um, for training as well as for storytelling. And so mm -hmm. I think it's kind of related to this idea of kind of mm -hmm. um, identity and in-situ assets. Yep. Um, what do you think? Well, um, you know, cinematic virtual reality is something that is close to my heart. We uh, My company is television and film. So we come from narrative and I've been making narrative, um, my whole life. Um, so for me, you know, humans are at the center of it. So our latest project, the avatar project is about making a human in a virtual space that seems like a human. Uh, and I've been very hard on the rocket scientists and brain surgeons who work for me that are way smarter than me and have been figuring this out. But to me, if you enter a virtual space with a human being, I want to be able to go up to that human and look at their pores and have their eyes track me and really kind of question whether or not there is actually someone standing here with me. I want that. I want to be able to poke that person and have them react. And I want to basically feel like, you know, I can smell them if I got it close enough, you know, smell their perfume. Um, what I, I was thinking about sort of how to, in the, do you remember the halls of the hall of presidents at Disney world? You know, you have Lincoln saying four score and seven years ago. And then, you know, in the future you see, robots like that that are you know westworld you can't tell them apart from from a human being our goal is to create in a way that's um not prohibitively expensive not you know it doesn't take weeks and weeks to render a human being that you can interact with because to me you know we've done a lot of virtual and ar experiences but if if it's not about a human being if there's a human being involved it's a little different so that's what i've been concentrating on um entertainment Obviously, entertainment to me is actually the hardest thing to crack in terms of a business model. I think that, um, you know, watching Game of Thrones on a big screen TV is a pretty darn entertaining evening. Um, to beat that in virtual reality is going to be really, really, really tough. But I think that in terms of education, enterprise, training, um, just real world interaction, the way you interact with your, you know, your social media, the Internet... If we bring that into a virtual or AR space, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So entertainment, as much as I come from an entertainment background, and I'd love to make all VR entertaining, I think that's actually the hardest nut to crack. I think that it's through the it's in the 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 other realms that actually there's a lot of opportunity. So yes, we're using um, our avatar. We're talking to um, as a for instance, we're we're talking to a university health network uh, in New York about creating training videos for them that actually use humans. They showed us their, they have um, their healthcare workers use um, VR to train on code blue situations, for instance. So once a year, everyone has to go through training and they showed us their, their VR. And it's sort of a bunch of doctors like this patient is having a heart attack and you can't see their mouths moving and stuff. And it's like, Whoa, that's, and they say, can you make our doctors look better? And we said, sure can, we can do that. So I think that, um, you know, in, training and onboarding and industrial uses there's a ton of use and you can just make it more realistic so you know to me it's about humans i really want to see the sweat coming down our avatar's face you know i want um you know that we actually showed the wrong video um but um in the demo that we have you can poke dominic and he'll react it he'll react to you you can just hit him in the crotch and because all my developers said like what will someone do when they put on this thing and someone said, they're going to hit him in the crotch. <laughs> and, it, and they're right. Most people go, most people will go and he'll, he'll say, oh, we're not friends, are we? Or something like that. So, 
you know, you kind of, you take human nature interacting with humans. And to me, that, that's very interesting. So that's what we're concentrating on. And I think we can deploy it in all kinds of different ways. That is your question? For sure. sure. Yeah. Anyone else? Well, um, what's interesting too is that Digital Hollywood, I mean, I've been coming here for years and we went through, I guess, what I've been coin trying to coin uh, VR winter, where like there was all this excitement early on with VR 2.0 and people were seeing dollar signs and they were waiting for like the, you know, the, the holiday rush never really materialized to the scale that anybody wanted. But now there's kind of renewed interest and listening to you speak, I'm thinking about this idea that like entertainment came first, maybe that was backwards. Maybe the expectation that we were going to be entertained by all this technology first was the mistake that we all made. We had to build infrastructure and find the new use cases for the new technology, and then maybe the entertainment case will, will catch up. I just think we're so good at entertainment in other formats. Yeah. I mean, we really have been working on film and television for more than a century, yeah. and it's bloody good. I mean, it's really an entertaining. People still go to films, and we still 3D didn't take off because a 2D experience is really, really, really good. So um, I think that, um, not to say we're not going to catch up and surpass it and try different languages, but it's a high bar. Yeah. So in the meantime, there's all these other um, avenues that we can pursue, I think. Yeah. Well, and now we have these new, these new devices for VR, so it seems like interest is, is really um, coming back. On the other hand, AR maybe is in more trouble. I don't know. A couple years ago, it was such a big deal that... Um, you know, we, we changed our, our research direction to make sure we understood this new medium and um, the headsets didn't really arrive when they did. They didn't work as well as people expected. I think there's still a lot of investment, but it's like it's also bifurcated between mobile AR and something that is more akin to what a AR vision originally was. And those to me are quite different. Um, so. So for Renee, what do you think about the, the state of AR today? And um, are we going through an AR winter? Um, I, think, I think arguably we're at the second, uh, we're at the tail end of what the first uh, hype bubble uh, was. I think um, for those of you that follow uh, Magic Leap, it was recently revealed that uh, they made less than $20 million in revenue and have uh, now raised, I think, something like $3.5 billion. Um, so there's a mismatch there, um, obviously. Um, <laughs> the WeWork of VR. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, um, there's a lot. Uh, the other thing that I would say is that there's a lot of people inside the industry that maybe are becoming more mindful of like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe it shouldn't be like this crazy um, spiral into, um, you know, uh, what? Being a, sitting a, being a dragon, sitting on a pile of gold. Or something like that, um, and I think uh, arguably um, the conversations that we're having um, with other entrepreneurs, that I'm having with other entrepreneurs and investors, is that uh, because of WeWork, um, there's a, a lot more um, focus now on reasonable metrics. Uh, like, are you like, have you made money? Are people interested um, in this product? That kind of basic stuff. Um, uh, we're doing okay on that side of it, just to, just to let you know, like, it's not like every AR uh, uh, company is like imploding at the moment. That's not the case at all. There's quite a few folks uh, that I'm aware of that are doing okay. Uh, most of them are working on the software side. I think on the when you're looking at, um, at the platform level, which is kind of the one that Magic Leap is chasing down, you just have to be realistic here about uh, Microsoft kind of being the uh, gorilla in the room 
and um, just being realistic about the type of work that they're doing. They're not only uh, uh, have a gaming console, which is obviously going to become crucial for the future of the industry. Um, they've got HoloLens 2, which is coming out, is supposedly doing gangbusters, and people are really uh, excited about that. And then they're, uh, they've, uh, for those of you unaware, they have relaunched the Connect. So there is a Connect version 3 that was, uh, has been shipping for the past few months. Uh, we have quite a few uh, versions and uh, uh, copies of those or units of those. Um, and that is a very imp impressive piece of technology. So I think if you look at where the actual hardware is going, processor capability, sensor capability, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening um, outside of the headset space for AR. And what I mean by that, it's skeletal tracking, body tracking, head tracking, digit tracking, all that kind of good stuff that supposedly 10 years ago we had reached some kind of limit or peak on that. Now we're breaking out of that world and it's starting to become very, very interesting. And you're seeing that um, uh, with Leap Motion, uh, which is a hand, uh, hand tracking device company, uh, which got recently acquired by Ultra Haptics. And I think that they're going to be doing interesting stuff with that. In the next 12 months, I think this thing that AR has to look forward to is that that hand tracking and that body tracking of individuals is going to get go quantum leap in um, an advancement and in sophistication, not only because there's big boys like, um, like uh, Microsoft putting money into that, but that everyone else is actually coming up with interesting ideas on how, how to solve this problem. Renee, what's, what's Facebook doing? What's um, Zuckerberg and Oculus doing in terms of AR? Um, I think they've, they've mentioned that they will be looking at pass-through AR, um, which if, uh, if, if you're not aware of the difference, pass-through AR means you're looking at a video signal out of a camera on the front of the headset, um, and then the AR is getting composited onto that video signal, as opposed to what conventional AR is. I don't, I don't even know if you call it conventional, but the HoloLens Magic Leap type of AR, which is you're actually seeing the real world through a, uh, what you can imagine to be like glasses, glass, except that the, um, the CG is being imprinted, overlaid on top of that real world. And there's an attempt to, you know, if, if it's, if I'm perceiving it on that table, there's an attempt to like, if I were to turn my head like that, that it would stay on the table. In actuality, you can argue that promise hasn't been achieved yet. So pass through AR, I think is easier for a number of technological, um, reasons. The, the first most being that, the latency issue and the tracking issue becomes far uh, uh, simplified because you actually have the video signal of the cameras to use as the uh, tracking data, mm -hmm. which is uh, it's a better way of doing it. Hmm. Samantha? Um, yeah, so do you guys know about Magic Leap? Or if you heard about Magic Leap? Well, um, so when Magic Leap came out, I felt it kind of, people have been working with the industry for some time, for the kind of the emperor's new clothes. And that was actually always the joke because you never really knew what the product was. Um, so I think like it's unfortunate because what has happened is the story of Magic Leap, which is kind of very much a cultural story and to Magic Leap itself is now a signal to investors. You know, it becomes a kind of parable, which like changes the fate and the direction that investors go, which is really kind of, I think, an unfortunate thing for the industry. So there are a lot of people in the industry like, who are hoping that it succeeds just because people use it as a barometer of different, uh, different things. Um, in terms of like this idea of like VR, AR winter, which it's very true. 
So when I was, a, this was more like more than 15 years ago, when I was a freshman in college, I started working in um, a cave environment, which is a type of VR studio that has four walls. It is back projected in stereo graphics. So it's drawn to one person's perspective wearing glasses and everybody else has to huddle around them and follow them around so that they can see like the 3D illusion. Um, but the point was that this was made like a billion dollar, you know, cave studio. And then in the 90s, the hype of VR kind of waned a little. And then they were, they had uh, lost their NASA funding. So they're like, fine, let's just bring in like these humanity students. You know, we're not using the space anyway. And then like, you know, eventually um, I went to USC and at USC, I saw in the mixed reality lab, there were these old like VR guys from the 90s who had just stuck with it long enough <laughs> that when Palmer Lucky was the lab assistant there, you know, and he like, it's a long story. But when, you know, Oculus got off the ground and then Facebook invested and there was a resurgence, guess what? Mm. They were there, you know? So like this, it's just a continuous pattern of how tech develops. And it's more, I think, a more important thing of like how you can maximize that and like kind of think about how entertainment or how, you know, what you're trying to do kind of fits into like the current space at that one time. Um, and there are people who are making Mad Bank off VR entertainment right now and they're in games. And, you know, they're games. and that's the people who are doing well. And, you know, it's not everybody who makes games for sure. But, you know, they're they're there, especially with Oculus Quest, who that has been um, very successful for some studios. So, yeah. In some ways, it's an old story of the technology and the content for the technology chicken and egg. Yeah. Right. Maybe well, there's an overinvestment in content at one point. Technology's not there. Then the technology's there, but there's no content. So no one uses it. Well, we call well, I think of it as a braid, a three-strand braid at our at our company. It's, you know, we've got the, the creative, the technology, and then the business model. Um, they kind of all, if you've got, a, you know, technology, but no way to deploy, no creative way to deploy it, it's not going to inspire anyone. They all kind of have to work to get together in a sense. And you, if you don't have the creative and the technology set, you're not going to attract the money. You're not going to find a business model. So, you know, at our company, we try to kind of create, pay attention to all three, um, whether it makes money, I don't know. We There was a lot of VC money in the last few years that kind of dried up. And um, I remember the guys working for me said, Dave, you should go after that $50 million VC. And we said, no, we bootstrapped ourselves. I was adamant. And I'm kind of glad because, you know, it's um, I didn't see a business model yet. Um, there's just a lot of money floating around. And I think it's guys like people like us who are still here uh, and we're tenacious um, the business models, we're going to slowly build those business models and we bring the, the three strands together. So um, the, the VC was for hardware largely. Right. So so that that to me was where the disconnect was because they didn't double down on content creation support. Yeah. And that's why you reference us as the people that are still here, because we're the ones that, you know, picked up the torch and started making anything for these this hardware. But but in terms of the ROI, it's you know, it's proven a lost leader. For those guys, because uh, mm. the, there hasn't been a seminal, the, the content pipeline is not unified and there hasn't been a seminal breakthrough piece that, that's not a game that makes yeah. everybody run to buy their... their so most of the money's in gaming or LBE, I guess, these days, isn't it? Because it replicates the existing models that everybody can wrap their heads around vis-a-vis -vis the theatrical releasing model where, you know, you put out a piece of content and people line up to pay you some tangible dollars for a tangible ticket. Yeah. for a, a you know out of home experience but but it's a swirling pool right it, it it'll evolve mm -hmm. um largely over time we just got to 
continue to stay with it for what was that 19 years <laughs> not 19 but 24 <laughs> and i think renee used the term uh you said you it's important to try to get oligarchs to fund big projects <laughs> uh -oh, uh -oh. um yes i i technically did say that at one point <laughs> um yeah i mean i mean just being realistic um looking looking at the economy and looking at consumer spending right now um people are very very happy with their smartphones um, and they're not making that many other purchases in consumer electronics, um, unless unless you're you know folks like these people on the on this panel here that just have to have you know the hottest newest thing. So just to give you an idea, um, like uh, we have a, like basically every headset or whatever in the office. The Oculus Quest is the first one that I'm considering buying for my for my girlfriend, basically. And ironically, the reason is because uh, a lot of her friends have them. And she wants to like uh, keep in touch with them. And this is like this is mind blowing to me that um, actually people are more um, reliably social on uh, these types of digital spaces just because they can plunk it on, uh, even almost like in their car. Like you know, obviously not driving, but like in like they can pull over and like plunk and like join the experience uh, or whatever. You know, I guess as long as they have Wi Fi or something. Um, but that that accessibility is the difference between like, um, you know, the threshold of like, oh, people um, are reliably available here in this digital space at this time, at this, in this specific, you know, virtual room or whatever. Um, so I have friends that are, that are like that, like, hey, you want to talk to me I'll, Wednesday at eight o'clock, I'll be over here doing this type of thing or that type of thing on the Oculus. Um, so that type of behavior is relatively new, I would argue. That's something that I haven't seen maybe since this came out, maybe even the last 90 days. Um, so uh, I think it's interesting that VR is moving in that space. But my definite feeling is that enterprise is the place where we're interested in uh, making some advancement. The idea being um, these brands have something novel that they need to uh, deliver on a continuous basis. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening on your phone on that screen. You have a lot of interesting stuff happening at home. So how do brands get you to come out, go to their event, come to their, you know, the convention, come to the retail location? Uh, we're trying to provide that that layer of in, of interesting, large, rich experiences. Uh, do you have the um, the other video that I sent you? That that would be good to play if you know. So let let me let me show you what I'm talking about um, when I when I mean something that's a little bit more than consumer. Did you did you have that one? Maybe. Okay. I'm not sure. I'll see if I can load it up quickly. Um, but in the meantime, David, you know, you're enterprise, yeah. right? So what do, what do you think about enterprise applications? Yeah, I mean, well, I, and just to follow up on what you just said, we talk about the FOMO threshold all the time at our company. And it's like, there is no FOMO yet for VR headsets. Um, it, as far as we had, that's the first I've heard of people feeling like, you know, my friend, enough of my friends are using it that I'm going to buy it just for that reason. Um, but why we, the reason we're excited about the Quest is, again, the super simplicity and the fact that it also does link up with the PC. And so in our minds, this is the best of both worlds. Uh, that's launching this month, by the way, um, where you can buy that. You can have it out of the box for your games, but then you can also plug it into a PC and get a high-powered enterprise experience um, at the same time. And so we're thinking a lot about how we build all of our content and all of our experiences to be cross-platform. Um, it's technically the same platform, but now we're talking about PC versus mobile. Um, 
and you know the the other main thing that we're noticing is there are essentially no mobile headsets left right mm. daydream is gone samsung gear vr is gone cardboard just sold the licensing rights so that anyone can use it um so you know there's a lesson there for sure i'm really happy that we skipped developing for mobile vr <laughs> because it no longer exists um but every time you pick a platform you're taking a risk um you know we we dove straight into magic leap um development as soon as the headset came out because we thought it was just good enough um whereas we weren't we didn't think hollands one was quite ready uh just given the field of view limitations so um you know, every time a new platform comes out, you're kind of doing a gut check. And if you if you're bootstrapped, which we are as well, you're deciding, are we going to pour six months of resources into this new platform? Um, but we're you know, we're waiting uh, with bated breath for the PC link to for Oculus Quest to come out for that reason. And if it's effective in performance, I think we'll essentially reach out to all of our existing customers, all of our potential new customers, say ditch everything use this. Hey, can I just follow up one thing that you were talking about too? I, I'm finding that, you know, people w would complain early on that these were isolating, that virtual reality isolates you from, from everyone else. But I've noticed in my, my um, experimental Petri dish being six kids, uh, teenagers, um, that, you know, they're constantly talking to each other this way. And they'll have, um, you know, they have to be home at night at night on a school night or whatever it is. But with VR, actually, it, it can be very social. You know, what a what a teenage boys often do. They often watch the football game or the hockey game together and they want to sit there with each other just watching TV. They do it in gaming right now. But what VR, I've noticed, will help them do is, is they get to hang out with each other. So you can literally, they'll literally be sitting in their room at home, but they'll look to their right and their, their buddies here and they look to the left and their buddies there and they could be watching the same thing. So I'm actually thinking that VR can be quite social um you know it, it can pull people together so it kind of it sort of goes against the grain of thinking that is traditional when it comes to vr it could bring us together and i think that's why i asked with zuckerberg because i know he wants to to turn sort of what facebook is for good or bad sort of bringing people together and communicating he wants to be able to deploy it um in vr anyway. yeah no and I, I actually have a question but i'm not going to ask it because we need to get to qa Anybody have questions? Yes. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I think just to clarify, I believe magically uh, collateralized some debt with their patents. They didn't assign them to them, but supposedly for a billion dollars yeah. loan. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So I mean, I think we're just seeing attrition, and that's that's actually great um, because we're weeding out you know, the things that aren't working well, and we're going to keep moving forward with the things that are working well. Um, I mean, I don't think, I, I didn't know the product intimately, but, you know, Daiquiri never made great strides. Uh, Meta was, you know, up against the big dogs as well there. Um, so, you know, Holland's 2 coming out right now, no one can get their hands on it because so many people want it, right? Um, so that's a, that's a good sign. Um, and I don't think, since it's a second generation device, I don't think there's a lot of risk there. I think everyone knows it's going to be two years to three years better technology wise than the Holland's one because it's been two to three years. Um, and so I, I don't think there are going to be any surprises and you're backed by the largest uh, company in the world. Go ahead. 
you know, I brought this this thing in this little white bag, and I didn't have to pack it up because this is what my daughter, she's 15, carries around. She carries this to school and to all her friends' houses. So uh, even with an extra bag, she's willing to, like, show everyone, take it all around, they all want to sit. So the smaller it gets, the more they're going to want it. And I agree with you with that generation. Maybe I'm biased because I have six of them. But, um, yeah, I think we have to be concentrating, sort of watching the patterns, the use patterns. Uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the main issues are going to be the actual throughput of the data off of that site where the, where the broadcast is happening and then to everybody else. I think um, when live streaming first began, digital, digital live streaming to be clear, uh, first began that they immediately hit bottlenecks or like, 2,000 people would join and I would crash every single server. I think th a lot of those infrastructure issues have been um, built out. There's a lot of real-time uh, uh, server infrastructure, um, uh, uh, high, uh, what do you call it, high-resolution uh, video infrastructure to actually make that stuff happen. So a lot of the way that that's happening is, is just like, it's, it's, um, it's, it's piggybacking on existing uh, live, live broadcast, live streaming uh, tools. Um, the only thing that is uh, different is if there's interactivity involved, which is one of the things that um, we're looking into. But again, it's uh, it's 5G, it's fiber optic, it's uh, being able, it's edge computing and being able to push processing and work into the cloud that is actually going to enable all this to happen. Um, so, like you know, this is something that Verizon is working on. AT and T is working on this. Every telecom uh, company internationally is working on this. They don't have a lot of use cases yet. AR and VR might be the perfect one. Um, and to, to, to give you an idea of where their head's at, there's a, there's a lot more density of the uh, actual 5G transceivers. Um, it's like something like five, it needs to be five times more dense or something than 4G. So they're looking actively for any, free, any reason that they can come up with to put plunk these down in a place, a Walmart, uh, that's why you know you can you can start to imagine what what they're thinking about. So that's some interesting conversations that we're we're having right now with those telecoms. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so in the last, I think it was eight months or whatever, Fortnite did a huge like virtual concert. You know, with lots of people joining, and there are mm -hmm. lots of experiments with live venues, which can be limited. You know, in certain ways. Um, there's different numbers that can join, right? It's not necessarily like restricted. Um, but if there's like a, in that case, you weren't able to interact with the performer. So in the under, we have up to like maybe 12 people in a room at a time and where it's more like vaudeville theater where everybody is networked and there's different instances of that room. So we can kind of tweak those numbers of how many people are in the room engaging and interacting with each other in the live performer, but there's there's certain like restrictions, you know, in terms of like frame rate and server and things like that. So it totally depends on the context. It totally depends on the resources of whoever is doing it. Um, if you're talking about something that is like more like hardware or more like a physical installation, it's about like the design of like the throughput of how many people like, you know, um, I forget exactly how many people um, Dreamscape can get through, but it totally depends on the number, the experience. I did one there where there was five people. I did one where there was three. So. I think Dreamscape is at four per, per pod. And I had a very long conversation with them. Those guys are doing really, really well. And they're opening a location something like every three months or something like that. So those guys are doing gangbusters. Uh, we're interested in, in working with them because they're, they're doing good. 
there's more questions, but I encourage you to come speak to the panelists. We're out of time, and there's a new panel in here in about 10 minutes, so I've been asked to cut it. So thank you all. Come up and uh, keep talking. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. You can find me online at DaveBirnbaum.com. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it, telling your friends and colleagues about it, and by supporting it through Patreon. More information at DaveBirnbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. The views and opinions expressed in this recording do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner or guests may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone, or anything. Copyright 2019, Dave Birnbaum.